Hi, my name is Ella Cabrera, and a promise that has meant a lot to me comes from Matthew chapter 11. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I first experienced the reality of this promise a couple of years ago when I was new in the faith. Before Jesus, I was heavily burdened by childhood traumas that led to unforgiveness and eventually they developed into depression and anxiety. As I became an adult, this turned to dark moments with thoughts of suicide, that for years I tried to cope with using anything the world promised me would bring me peace, joy, fulfillment, and relieve this emptiness. I was trying to be my own God, running on a hamster wheel and so utterly exhausted. With every achievement, I just moved on to the next thing because the feeling was quickly fading. I was laboring constantly, weighed by more and more things I saw out in the world. It all added to the invisible burden on my back. I still knew deep within that there was something completely broken. I always wondered about God and Jesus, but I had absolutely no idea um, that I was on a path of a works-based salvation until I heard the gospel. And with it, I had the realization of my own sin and that I wasn't just broken. I was literally dead in sin, living in a fallen world, and nothing I could do would fix that. Faith alone in Jesus could save me, not only my works. I prayed to Jesus and told Him I was putting my faith in Him. I began to experience true peace for the first time, but for a while I was still trying to figure out how to live life like a Christian. I didn't know what it meant to follow Jesus. I still had doubts about how salvation worked. Looking back, I can see that even though I recognized my sin and my need for a Savior, um, I did not know how to move forward from there until I learned more about the Jesus in whom I put my faith in. I learned and understood that Jesus was fully God and fully man, one with the Father. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, becoming man himself, lived the perfect life, and suffered on the cross for us. Death was the debt I owed, the punishment I deserved from God, and it was absorbed by God himself in Jesus. His resurrection was the proof. With this understanding, all doubt was removed, and I knew for certain Jesus was God, and that only He knew the Father and had chosen to reveal to me what His heart was like. A heart that is gentle, a friend of sinners, like me, like all of us, near to the brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. He wants to forgive, heal, and reconcile with us. In His gentleness, patiently, He gives us opportunities to come to Him, desiring that no one perish. I also saw that His heart was lowly. In my absolute lowest, He was there. In the darkness, the light of man met me and pulled me out. I went from simply knowing my need of a Savior to loving that Savior and surrendering everything to Him in faith. I could truly say that I knew God. Since then, uh, God has removed, replaced, and rearranged many things in my life. But I still have to labor daily, as I still have to go to work, be a parent, and steward all the things that God has given me, none of which is easy. But these aren't the burdens I needed removed. Rather, laboring to find my own way, striving to atone for my own sin, and the dead end of trying to be my own God. The vast difference today, my labor, is that I'm no longer doing things in my own strength and with the wisdom of a fallen world. The yoke I carry isn't carried alone. The God of all power, strength, and wisdom is carrying it with me on the other side while teaching me the better way and keeping my soul at rest in Jesus. On the days I become forgetful of who God is and what He's done, His promises will remain true. He remains unchanging in His heart towards us. On days the yoke feels too difficult, He's taught me that it's not because He's no longer carrying it with me, but because I've either added to it what He didn't intend for me to carry, or I've been trying to carry it all without Him. And when the sin in this life before heaven pulls me down, He's still gentle. 
His love and His forgiveness is readily available. He continues to show me His lowliness by meeting me in the suffering and darkness, calling for me to go to Him just as He did the first day I experienced His indescribable peace. For anyone wondering what God is like, I would encourage them to take hold of this promise because not only can God be known, He wants to be known by us. Go to Him, all who labor and are heavy laden. Take His yoke upon you and learn from Him, for He is gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. All right, I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer. All right, because uh, that was really good. All right, so uh, Ella is uh, one of our newest staff members here, and we're thankful for you. Thank you for serving us, and thank you for your just amazing understanding of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. All right, all right, we're still going to do the sermon. <laughs> all right. So, the promise for today Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Um, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All right, so everybody say rest. rest. Everybody say ah. All right, now think about a really restful moment uh, in your life. All right, you got it? Now turn to someone around you and tell them about this really restful moment in your life. I'll give you like a minute. All right, so we need to ask whether that rest you're describing is actually the rest that Jesus is talking about here, right? Because it may not be sipping cold drinks on the beach. Uh, we have to figure out what this promise exactly looks like. And Jesus says, if we come to him burdened and heavy laden, he will give us rest. Uh, but then Jesus doesn't just stop there. He keeps going, and he says, you're going to have to take something from me. And that's not, you know, take a seat and chill out. Uh, he says, take a yoke. And, you know, I thought we're talking about rest here, but this is the picture that he's describing. Take a yoke. Now, I couldn't find, like, a physical yoke to show you, but I found this picture. Uh, so a yoke, right, is a wooden cross piece that is fastened over the necks of two animals and attached to the plow or cart that they are about to pull. This doesn't look very restful to me, right? I think even these cows are like, Jesus, what's going on over here? Are you sure about this? So when Jesus paints a picture of rest, he paints this picture, uh, and he doesn't paint this picture. So, but Jesus continues to say, hey, no worries. I got it all planned out. When you put on this yoke, you're going to be amazed to find that his yoke is easy, and then this burden is light. So, but it's still burdens and yokes, and I thought we were talking about rest here. So maybe it's not the rest that we quite expect. And Jesus says three things. He says, come, hey, take a yoke, uh, and then learn. And I think to understand this promise uh, a little better, we do have to go through the context of John or Matthew 11 uh, because it comes at the very end of this chapter. So let's turn to our Bibles into chapter 
11. Let's look at the context um, and let's get into it. Okay, so chapter 10, Jesus appoints the 12 disciples. He calls them out by name. And as a Marine, I always saw the 12, the calling of the 12 as a Marine rifle squad. Okay, the mission of a Marine rifle squad is to locate, close with, and destroy the enemy by fire and maneuver. And Jesus takes his band of brothers here, okay, and he's going to teach them a new and different way to fight. He's going to teach them there's actually another enemy that we need to fight. He says, I'm going to send you out as sheep among wolves, and that's kind of the picture that he paints for them when he sends them out to this area. And so he, once again, paints a different picture of what it's like to be on mission, like sheep among wolves. And so he tells them, you may get flogged, you may get put in prison, okay, the message that you're going to deliver will divide families, but then he says in verse 40 in chapter 10, anyone who receives you receives me, and anyone who receives me receives the Father who sent me. So he's given them his band of brothers, okay, a mission briefing before they go out. And that's when we get to chapter 11. So chapter 11, verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And now some, some of your virgins say uh, that he was to preach or in the towns of Galilee. So Jesus concentrated his ministry uh, in this area around Galilee. And this is actually where most of his disciples are from. So Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they're all from this area. Um, Bethsaida, right there by the red, um, is actually where he fed the 5,000. Uh, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which is over on the west there, but he spent most of his ministry in Capernaum, near the Sea of Galilee. So this is where he taught in the synagogues. Uh, he would do many miracles there. He healed a lot of people there. He cast out unclean spirits. He healed a centurion's son, a nobleman's son, uh, Jairus' um, daughter he raised from the dead. And on the way, he healed okay, a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. So he did a lot of ministry here. But he also had a little fun. He went surfing uh, with his, uh, his disciples there. He was walking on water, OK? All right. All right. And it was in Capernaum that he actually gave uh, his Sermon on the Mount. And so this area received the gospel, and he received uh, a description of the kingdom of God, and they saw the full-on the works and the miracles of Jesus. Uh, and what was their response? So lots of people came to check him out. They were trying to figure out, who, you know, who is he? Is he the Messiah? You know, lots of people came to get healed. Lots of people came to get free food. And it was a time for the people of Israel to evaluate and to decide whether this guy was their Messiah and if he was going to bring the kingdom. And so what they were expecting, right, was it matching up to what they were seeing? Okay. And so let's look at their expectations. So in chapter 11, verse 2, um, the first one, John the Baptist over here. When John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, okay, what he was doing, what he was saying, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are, are you the one who's to come? Or shall we look for another? Because John the Baptist was the one right, who baptized Jesus. He saw the heavens open up and the dove and the Holy Spirit come upon him. The voice from the Father saying, Oh, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And whenever Jesus was walking around, he would point to him and say, Oh, behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And now he's in prison. 
Okay? And then he's asking his disciples, well, go, go to Jesus and ask him, you know, well, is he the one who was to come? And so his heart is not at rest here. Um, we get a clue from Matthew 3, 11 to 12, why he's kind of having these doubts. So in Matthew 3, 11 to 12, it says, okay, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Right, so maybe one of the things that John is asking is, Where's the winnowing fork? Where is the fire here? So great, another farm term, okay? A winnowing fork. Do you guys know what a winnowing, a winnowing fork is? Okay, I couldn't find a, a yoke, but I found this in the garage. So there you go. Like a, a winnowing fork. It's kind of like this, right? And so I looked up the definition of a winnowing fork, and it says, a hand device used by the farmer to throw the mix from his shredded pile of grain and straw, uh, kind of like this, into the air, and then the wind will carry the straw and the chaff away, and the grain falls back uh, for collection. Now, some of you, when you think of a guy who has a, something like this and fire, like a fire and a fork, who do you think of, right? But that's actually not very biblical, okay? Because John the Baptist, when he's looking for a fire and a fork, Okay, who's he looking for? Okay, Jesus. Uh, and he's expecting Jesus to bring a fork uh, and maybe to start drawing lines of okay, who's good and who's bad and to bring judgment. Uh, but Jesus is not doing that. Instead, what he hears from prison is that Jesus is near the brokenhearted. He's healing people. He's touching the unclean. He's eating and drinking uh, with people who are sinners and maybe even tax collectors who are definitely on the wrong side uh, of that line. And on the Sermon of, on the Mount, he's saying things like, hey, love your enemies. He's telling people to turn the other cheek. Uh, he's saying if a Roman soldier tells you to carry his load for one mile, well, you, you go and carry it two miles for him. It's not exactly what maybe John was expecting. Where's the fork? Where's the fire? But what we need to remember, the most um, quoted scripture Right in the Bible, um, is actually Exodus 34, 6 or 7, the very first description of who God is. And it says this, okay, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. He maintains loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he won't declare the innocent guilty. He will bring the iniquities of the father upon the children and the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. Hey, the, the, the fork of justice will come, but he actually has been more patient, more compassionate, more slow to anger, more gracious than you can ever imagine. Even more patient and gracious than John the Baptist can ever be. Even more patient and generous uh, than we uh, can ever be. And so, Scripture says, The Lord is not slow about fulfilling His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And that's what he's after, repentance. John wants the fork, but Jesus reassures him, hey, not yet. Right? He doesn't rebuke him because judgment will come. And even though it's not exactly what 
John expects okay, that he is the one. He tells John not to stumble over the fact that he's doing these things and reaching to the brokenhearted, but he will go after wickedness at some point. But once again, maybe not in the way John expects. All right, so where's the fork? Where's the fire? Okay, not yet. Verse 7. So as they, John's disciples, went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John and says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? So why does Jesus now start talking about John? He knows the people think that maybe he's not the Messiah they expected, but he also knows that okay, this guy who's eating bugs out in the desert, um, who's dressed in camel skins, okay, and who's now doubting his ministry is also not exactly the prophet that the people expect. So he's like, hey, what do you guys think about John? Uh, what did you guys go out in the wilderness to see? Okay, a reed shaken by the wind? Okay, no, that's not John. He's not a pushover. He was very bold with Herod, and he got himself put in prison. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Uh, behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Okay, so John did not use his powers to gain wealth and comfort for himself. Okay, then what did you go out and see? Okay, a prophet. Yes, uh, much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Okay, so the guy who's out in the desert okay, eating bugs and honey and is wearing camel skins, he's actually the greatest man who's ever lived okay, and the greatest prophet who's ever lived. And Jesus affirms John in front of the people Okay, because I think the people were looking for a Messiah and his messenger. And then when they looked at John and when they looked at Jesus, it wasn't exactly what they expected. People were looking for hope and rest, uh, maybe from slavery, from Rome. But when they look at John and when they look at Jesus, one is in jail. And then the other one is saying, hey, let's love our enemies, guys. And let's eat with sinners and tax collectors. And he doesn't seem to think that Rome is kind of the biggest enemy here. And so Jesus has a commentary on these expectations, okay? And this is what he says in verse 16. To what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. Hey, so they're asking, hey, why aren't you acting like what we expect? Hey, why aren't you dancing to our tune? And this kind of goes back to that first question that we asked, hey, what kind of rest are we expecting that Jesus will bring towards us? And it may not be the rest that okay, we're expecting or thinking about. And Jesus declares in verse 16, I'm not going to go dance to your tune. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to look like exactly what you expect. And I think as we go forward kind of personally and as a church, we need to be very careful that um, we're not expecting things from Jesus that he does not promise us. And we need to be abiding with him, abiding in his word, waiting for him step by step, uh, or, or else we won't find the rest that he's talking about. Okay. It may not look like the way we want. Okay. Um, even John the Baptist doesn't get out of jail. He gets his head chopped off. Even Jesus gets crucified on a cross. And the Messiah and his messenger okay, are sheep among the wolves. So there's a stubbornness and a rejection that's there. And Jesus says, 
because it doesn't quite look like the way you want, the way you expected. Okay, you're being stubborn and you're not repenting and turning from your ways, even though there's enough evidence for you to do so. And here's what he says, 18 to 24, Matthew 11. For John, he came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, oh, he's, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, oh, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So Jesus says, hey, we're going to see what happens at the end. Verse 20, he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Okay, so the, the context okay, of our promise that we're heading towards is found in the midst of people expecting things that are wrong, being stubborn and rejecting him despite the very visible and clear work okay, of God in their lives. And I, I believe when Jesus finally gets to his promise when he says, rest for your souls, he's actually quoting from Jeremiah 6, uh, 16 to 19. And he says this in Jeremiah 6, 16 to 19. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look. Ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Okay, but they say, okay, we will not walk in it. Okay, I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, okay, we will not pay attention. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. Okay, are you and I like this? Okay, we've been given enough information, and we say, nope, I'm not going to walk in it. Okay, nope, okay, I will not pay attention. Okay, and that's the danger for all of us, to have a lot of knowledge, okay, and yet still be stubborn about it. In the church, we can be educated above and beyond okay, our obedience to what God is calling us to do, and that's a danger for all of us. We've had enough warning, enough signs, enough miracles, and how much more does he need to give you for you to come to your senses, I think is what he's asking. So there's um, this popular uh, tourist destination uh, near Galilee in, uh, in Israel. I don't know how many of you have ever been to Israel. Uh, it's this place called Mount Arbel. Okay, and they say it probably has uh, the best view of the Sea of Galilee uh, in the area. And so when you go up and hike uh, to the top of this thing, you can actually see those cities that Jesus condemns, you know, Chorazin, um, Bethsaida, and Capernaum from the top of this place. And what's interesting about this mountain uh, is that it was actually an ancient cave fortress. So when you explore this area, this is what you find. Right? There's like dwellings in there, there's staircases, um, and it was actually uh, built um, and used as a fortress okay, by the zealots. So the, the zealots used this place as a headquarters kind of for the rebellion against Rome. They would go to this place, and this is where you know, they would go. They would kill the Romans, disrupt them, and then come back into this fortress. 
And so why do you think Jesus right, chose this place okay, to concentrate his ministry on? Right? And I think that's his mercy. Okay? This, these towns were a hub uh, for the zealots to recruit people. And in his mercy, Jesus says this, that's where I'm going to go preach. Okay? That's where I'm going to go raise up my band of brothers to teach them a new way of rest and a new way of salvation, to teach them there's a bigger enemy here than Rome. Okay, the bigger enemy is sin and self-righteousness, but everybody was so focused on this that they couldn't hear what he was saying. Um, eventually, in AD 37, there was a rebellion, and Herod and the Romans actually killed a whole bunch of zealots that were hiding out okay, in this fortress. And they were probably hailed as heroes by the Jews, Okay, but Jesus says, this is not the life okay, that I had for you. Right? So are we the same way? Is this a story that we want to live in our lives of Mount Arbel? Right? Do we foolishly build up our own kingdoms, our own fortresses, our own ways of doing things? And I think this is what Jesus is referring to when he talks about our heavy burdens that we put on ourselves, that we carry. Okay, our self-made fortresses and kingdoms of doing life, identity, or performance, or vengeance, or success, material possessions, whether it's gender, whether it's sexuality, whatever idol you're pursuing, Jesus is trying to show us a new way. And he says, you can be really stubborn. Okay, we'd rather hide in your caves. All right, so what things are we kind of building up? And so, verse 27, he says, there's a way out of these caves. And in the midst of rejection and stubbornness that Jesus is talking about, Jesus points out to something that he can give thanks to. So in verse 25, he says this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was, a, was your gracious will, and all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So the pathway out of this cave, the pathway to his promises, right, is humility. Right? Those who are wise in their own eyes, those who are self-righteous, will not be able to partake in the promises of God. Like the Sermon on the Mount, it's the meek, the poor in spirit, the contrite and broken who are like little children who will truly see hey, the Father and the Son. So in order to partake in his promises, we must come humble or be humbled right, by God to draw near to him. So humility will always be the pathway to God's promises, away from false expectations, away from stubbornness, but towards God's promises. And he says, hey, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, okay, not your time, but at his time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I believe when Jesus says this line about little children, I think he was probably looking at the ragtag group of people following him made up of sinners, of tax collectors, of fishermen, and even rebels who could have been recruited right, by the zealots who could have died in that fortress, but now they're living a new way of life and learning something new. Um, and following Jesus right, to a life that's full of rainbows and butterflies, right? Just good things? Hey, okay, no. 
Right? It'll be a life where they will still have to bear burdens. There's still yoke, but not alone anymore. And this is when we finally come to our promise. Right? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So all who labor, all who are weary and exhausted, all you who are heavy laden, overburdened right, with sin, with sinful self-made kingdoms, systems of life, legalism, traditions. Okay, are you tired of all this? And he says, the invitation is to come, be humble, and come to him, and he will give us rest. We can rest because we can see striving and know that he is God. We can see striving and rid ourselves of burdens that we were never meant to carry. Right? So Jesus doesn't just stop at rest. But he keeps going, and he actually talks about soul rest, right? Because rest, like we said, doesn't mean that we just check out, okay? Um, it means that there's still things for us to do, okay? And that's why he talks about a yoke, because we have to keep uh, living life. And there's true and fruitful labor that God is calling us to. And Ephesians 2.10 even says, we're made for good works, and there are things in this life that we do need to bear, like our Great Commission, okay, resisting sin and bearing one another's burdens. We have yokes that are still to bear. Okay. And so we need to take on his yoke, okay, not the ones we make for ourselves or others put on us to carry. Uh, we must carry the right thing. But I think the most important thing about this yoke that he's describing, that we have to take on ourselves is the other person on the other side. Who is who? Right? Jesus. And Jesus, who instead of bringing the fork right, or the hammer down, he lowers himself. He's gentle and lowly, and he goes right beside us on our yoke. Right? He is the king. He is the most powerful being, but yet he lowers himself, and he takes that yoke upon us. And he slides himself next to us, and he says, hey, let's go. Let's do this together. And this is what we learn about the God who is for you and his heart for you. Okay? And so a lot of times when you look at this promise, I think we focus a lot on the rest and the yoke part. Okay? But the prize ultimately that's being offered here is the presence of Jesus himself. Okay? And he's gentle and lowly, and he's not ahead of us kind of pulling us and dragging us along. Okay, he's not behind us, like kicking us and saying, let's go, let's get going, even though sometimes some of us need to pray for that, right, to get us going. But he's, he says, in a yoke right next to us, step by step, side by side with him. And I think that's what soul rest ultimately looks like. Right? Soul rest is being okay, in the presence of Jesus, okay, step by step, side by side with him. And sometimes, even if Jesus doesn't take away okay, this circumstance that I'm going through, just to know and feel his presence next to me, uh, hopefully is enough. Okay? Soul rest is being in the presence of Jesus, step by step, side by side with him. And when we're lockstep with Jesus, he says that we're going to learn something, that his yoke is actually easy and his burden is light. And so we should be asking, hey, is that true? Is yoke easy and is burden light? Because life is hard. There's pain and there's suffering. 
But he says there actually can be a lightness to this life if we're actually yoked to him. So his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And I think we can say that's true in these ways. Okay, first, okay, salvation from our sins. Okay, Jesus said in Matthew 23 about the Pharisees, he says, they tie up heavy burdens and, that are hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They were putting a burden of salvation by works on people and not willing to lift a finger. But in contrast to that, Matthew 11 says, Jesus lowers himself and puts a, that yoke and that burden on him. And ultimately emptying himself to the point of dying on the cross for our sins so we can gain his righteousness through faith in him. So Colossians 2, 13 to 14, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut, cut away. God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it on the cross. So you don't have to carry that burden anymore of charges against you. Okay, so in light of what Christ has done for us in salvation, is the yoke easy and light? Overwhelmingly, yes. Okay, and if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, he says, for all who receive him and all who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become what? Children of God. So that's the other way. Our yoke is easy and our burden is light. Our identity as a child of God. And in Matthew chapter 3, back again to John the Baptist, we get a glimpse of how the Father loves okay, his children. So even before Jesus kicks off his ministry, right, he gets baptized and the Father speaks over his son and he says, okay, this is my son, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He says about Jesus, that's my boy. I love him. I'm already pleased with him. And he hasn't done anything yet. Right? So he goes in the power uh, of that, um, that declaration, that he doesn't have to prove anything okay, because he is a child of God. And I think that's what every child needs to hear. That's what every one of your children need to hear from you as parents. Right? You're my child. I love you already, and I'm already pleased with you. And they can go in the power of not having to prove themselves. Right? And then the first thing that Satan attacks when he goes out in the desert is his identity as a child. And he says, go do this stuff for me. But Jesus is secure in his identity as a son, right? So he goes out in the power of the Holy Spirit in the desert, and that's the other thing that makes our burden light, the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And you should know that the one word that's always tied with the Holy Spirit is power right? Every child of God is given the Holy Spirit, okay, to empower us to live the life that we need to live. And so we're asked to pray for the Holy Spirit to, to fill us, to control us, right, and to empower us. And that's one prayer that every one of you guys should be praying every day, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, we can live a life that can be easy and light. And lastly, right, in light of eternity with Jesus, if we can experience soul rest in the presence of Jesus now in this life, step by step, side by side with him, then how much more when we finally go face to face with him in all eternity? Romans 8.18 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Um, and in 1857, there's this missionary named David Livingstone, and he addressed uh, a bunch of students in Cambridge University. He was a missionary to Africa, and he says this, 
For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much time in Africa. You know, anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then. And he says, all these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Now, maybe I'm not quite there yet in being able to say that, that I, you know, I've never made a sacrifice. But in the light of what is coming for us, uh, given to us in Christ, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing with the glory okay, that will be revealed to us in Christ. Okay. So in light of our salvation, in light of our identity in Christ, in light of the power of the Holy Spirit and the future eternity of glory with him, we can indeed say that this burden is easy and this yoke is light. Right? But the promise and the invitation from our Savior is you need to come humble and come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Okay? In our wrestling, in our skewed expectations, in our stubbornness, in holding on to our way of life, in our weariness, Jesus says, humble yourself in the same way that he humbled himself for you and come. And the goal is not just relax and rest, right? The goal is soul rest, okay? to be experiencing the presence of God, connected with him side by side, step by step. And one day we look forward to seeing him face to face. But for today, the encouragement and the promise for us, we need to get yoked with him, okay? And even Paul says in Philippians 1, 2, and he was longing in his work to just finally be with Christ. And he says this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, that's so much better. But he says, if I'm to live in the flesh, okay, that means fruitful labor for me. So as we continue here as a church, okay, we have some fruitful labor up ahead in front of us. So let us come, let us get yoked okay, with him. Okay, this is the only way we have to do it. Okay, this is how we last, and this is the only way we can go forward as a church until we come and see him again. So let's go get yoked up to him. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that in all these things you are with us. You are gentle and lowly, and you come alongside us, not in front of us, not behind us, but side by side to help us, Father to humble ourselves, our expectations, our stubbornness, to lay it at your feet uh, and come in all our weariness and our, all our anxiety and lay it down at your feet. Help us to go move forward yoked with you that we're not doing this in our own strength but in your, in your strength. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.